0: Support for WMFE comes from Orlando Science Center, offering four floors of wonder and discovery for families and curious minds of all ages. With exhibits, movies, and live shows that promote learning new skills, exploring fresh ideas, and cultivating a better understanding of the world around us. Tickets and more at OSC.org.
1: From shuttle to starship, you're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. For three decades, the space shuttle program carried 355 astronauts into orbit on 135 missions, and it took a team of thousands of engineers, technicians, and other employees to keep the program flying. A new documentary, When We Were Shuttle, tells the stories of those working behind the scenes and what the program meant to them. We'll speak with director Zachary Weil about the film. Then, SpaceX is making progress on its Starship spacecraft, and work continues here in Florida at the Kennedy Space Center. We'll hear from NASASpaceflight.com Assistant Managing Editor Chris Gebhardt about the latest from Starbase and KSC. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. Space shuttle launches captured the attention and admiration of Floridians, myself included. For decades, the program shaped the region, sustaining a robust aerospace industry for decades on Florida's space coast and beyond. But the program's cancellation ushered in an economic downturn after the final mission in 2011. A new documentary from WLRN titled When We Were Shuttle looks at the people of the program and the highs and lows of the space shuttle. To talk more about the film, we're joined by Zachary Weil, director of When We Were Shuttle. Zachary, I, I always like to ask, you know, as a journalist,
0: um, how did you come across this story? Well, I guess there's a short and a, and a long answer. Um, I'll try to give you in between. Okay, <laughs> um, I, <laughs> I grew up in South Florida, uh, in the eighties and nineties. And so the space shuttle was, uh, always just really important to me as a kid. Um, and I, you know, I remember taking trips up to the Kennedy space center as a part of the young astronauts club and wanting to be a part of, uh, what was going on there. Um, of course I wasn't very good at math and, uh, saw that that was a pretty big entry into it, but, um, when I started to become interested in film, um, especially as a, as a documentarian, I knew I always wanted to do a project uh, about uh, the space program, space history. Um, so I actually did a project a few years back about the Apollo space program. Um, and we did a very similar thing to what we did with this story with Shuttle where we found a a group of individuals who worked behind the scenes on Apollo um, and uh, brought that film to life just around the time of the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11. Um, And, uh, you know, I I think one of the things that really interested me about um, space history, history in general, I'm a big history buff, but space history in particular is I didn't see that there was a ton dedicated to social history. Um, I saw a lot of the stories coming from the top down, um, you know the recounts of astronauts or, or figureheads. And I think that that's wonderful. but when you look at the the enormous workforce that fueled centers like the Kennedy Space Center, um, you know it, it, it would it, it just felt like there was a big chunk of the story missing. So I guess in my own little way, I, I wanted to try to bring, um, they're the voices of these individuals who work behind the scenes to light. Um, and so, when the opportunity to do uh, this project came around, I uh, I pitched it to WLRN down in South Florida, who had picked up the Apollo documentary, um, and uh, and they were really game for it. Um, and you know, we just uh, we used a lot of our contacts that we had found during the Apollo doc. Just reached out to those figures um, to see where we could start with this one, where you know they had friends or, or former colleagues that they thought would be great uh, for the program, and that just kind of launched us in all directions. Mm-hmm. You you
1: said something that um, that caught my attention. You said you grew up in South Florida. Where at in South Florida?
0: I grew up in Miami. Okay, um, South Miami, I, actually. So
1: I grew up in Coral Springs, so Broward County, around that same time, and I watched the shuttle launches from down there. I went to Kennedy Space Center as a student, and as I'm as I was watching this documentary, the the title really spoke to me. When we were shuttle, it's it it, it that that word were it, it was an identity, you know that there was the people that worked the shuttle program, right, but there was also everybody else here in Florida that was following along, kids like us watching this. I mean, can you just explain that to, to people that may not have grown up in that era, just how much this was part of the DNA of, of growing up here, the Space Coast and beyond, you know, throughout the Florida Peninsula?
0: Well, I'm just going to paraphrase uh, something that one of our uh, subjects, you know, said to me when we first started this project. You know, um, he said, and I, I believe him that you know, with the shuttle, whenever the shuttle went up, um, everybody would just kind of stop and and just take a look. And it didn't matter if you you know lived uh, a mile away from KSC and you literally saw it go up, or if you lived uh, you know in California or in the Northeast, it really did seem like there was. Uh, you know, it, it brought us together as, as a country, um, that, uh, you know, we could just be going about our day and, you know, look up to a TV or hear on the radio that, that the shuttle had lifted off or was, uh, you know, docking with the space station or, or coming back in for a landing. Um, and, and, I really do think that, um, it, it, it did kind of make us all feel, uh, connected somehow. I, I can't really explain it beyond that, but I think it has something to do with the, with the longevity of the program that, you know, it was, it flew for 30 years and, you know, that's, that's a career span for people. That's, uh, that's a lifespan for some people, you know, I mean, that, that's a long time for this one vehicle to be, to be going up and down. And for, you know, kids like us that grew up during the program, I think it, um, I don't think we were really aware, at least I, I'll just speak for myself. I don't think I was really aware of how special and unique it was. Um, I knew it was cool, but now that it, the program is over and like you said, you know, there's a new generation of kids that have grown up without Shuttle. It it really does now stand out as like, yeah, that was a really special thing that we got, that we got to see and experience. Shuttle got a lot of criticism for being,
1: expensive. there were you know, two disasters that ended in the loss of crew. Um, you know what did you learn from from these folks that were so connected to the program facing that kind of criticism both in the moment and, and years later? I mean how has that affected them?
0: Yeah, I think you know, it's a good question. I, I think that um, you know it, it, as you'll see in the film, I think it became apparent to some of these individuals while they were in the midst of the program. That all of the things that Shuttle was supposed to be were, were proving to be more and more difficult to accomplish. And I think for, for the workforce at KSC, particularly the you know that the technicians and the contractors that actually had their hands on the vehicle, you know, that were tasked with servicing and, and you know and getting the vehicle ready for flight again, that that pressure to perform you know, in accordance with the ways that that, you know, politicians and individuals who had pitched shuttle to Congress, you know, said that this thing was going to fly. I mean, we're we're talking like 50 or 60 flights a year just to break even um, without any proven, uh, you know, track record that that would even be possible with the technology or the way it was built. So yeah, I, I think that the pressure was real. I think that, um, I think it became apparent to, to individuals when they were in the thick of the program that that these things were just not going to be possible some of them were not going to be possible and that the cost yeah ultimately was um, was maybe just not sustainable um, which is you know it's kind of one of the the dualities of shuttle that I think is it's it's you know kind of tragic in a way that it, the program had so many wonderful things but um, Sadly, I think one of the things that's, that's always going to, you know, be remembered almost above all else are the, are the two tragedies or the two accidents that killed 14 astronauts.
1: Mm-hmm. Zachary, you, you said, you know, you, you grew up with this, you're, you're a history buff. Um, you've done a documentary on Apollo. Um, you're well ingrained in the space program. Was there anything that was that was surprising or particularly enlightening when you were working on this film that, that you could share with us?
0: I I mean, there are so many things. I I think one thing that just stood out to me, um, I think more so with shuttle than, than with doing the documentary on Apollo is just the amount of time that goes by on a program like shuttle. Um, You know, I mean, Mercury and Gemini are blips. Apollo is, you know, probably about a decade from start to finish, maybe a little longer, but this is, this is a, a 40-year program from, you know, the time that Congress approves the funding for it in the early 70s to the last flight in 2011. So just to see, I think, how, you know, people like some of our, our, our subjects came in as young adults with no life experience, with no career professional experience, and had an entire professional career in this one place doing this one thing um really stood out to me um you know the 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 skills that they learned the friendships that they developed the hardships that they faced at work i mean that there were some things that that happened that weren't so great uh you know particularly with with women and minorities persons of color you know it it sometimes we like to kind of Imagine that because it's NASA or because it's, you know, a a federal program or, you know, a national program that that's that that there's a lot of harmony and and there was a lot of wonderful stuff, but it was also really challenging for some people. And I think that humanity is really what stuck out for me more than anything else was just seeing them as as people, as everyday people going to a job, um, except, you know, unlike... (laughs) someone sitting at a desk or or doing a podcast or making a film, they're sending people into space.
1: That was Zachary Wild, director of the new documentary, When We Were Shuttle. WLRN, WMFE, and WUCF are hosting a screening of the documentary at the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex on Thursday night. Details about the event will be at WMFE.org slash Are We There Yet? And the documentary will have a global premiere on WLRN November 16th. Still to come, a new spacecraft is on the brink of its first orbital flight. The latest on SpaceX's Starship, that's ahead on Are We There Yet, here on 90.7 WMFE News. You're listening to Are We There Yet, here on 90.7 WMFE News. I'm Brendan Byrne. In Boca Chica, Texas, SpaceX is poised to launch its newest spacecraft, Starship, on its maiden orbital flight. Meanwhile, here in Florida, work continues on a second launch facility at Kennedy Space Center. For the latest news on SpaceX's next rocket, we're joined by Chris Gebhardt. He's the Assistant Managing Editor at NASASpaceFlight.com. Chris, welcome back to the show. Always a pleasure to be here. So, Chris, I saw the tweet from Elon of SpaceX stacked out at Boca Chica, and you were the first person I decided I was going to call to tell us about what we're looking at. <laughs> this is absolutely incredible. What what are we seeing um, down at Starbase in, in Texas? What does this mean for the program?
2: Yeah, so this is a really big milestone in their overall progression toward first flight for the Starship system. Uh, we've seen uh, in, in 2020 and 2021, we saw those um, suborbital hops of the ship portion of it. But this is everything. This is the the super heavy booster, the ship, the 33 Raptor engines that all have to ignite together to lift this behemoth of a vehicle off the planet, which would actually be a record. 33 engines lighting together and lifting something successfully will be a record over the Soviet N1 rocket, which had 31. So um uh, but but more so to a, a bit closer to reality, it's a major step for the Artemis program. And for NASA, you know, we've got the SLS rocket that's uh, going to be doing its first flight here, hopefully in November, uh, with the Orion capsule, and the Starship component of that is the Lunar Lander. So seeing it stacked out there as they actually start to progress toward full fueling tests of the entire vehicle, filling it up completely like we see them do with the Falcon 9s and Falcon Heavies out here for static fires, going through those firing campaigns of the engine and really making sure that from a test flight, from a first flight perspective, that you've dotted all the I's that you can and crossed all the T's that you can. Although it's important to note that first flights, you can never retire all of the risk. You just have to retire enough of it to be comfortable to lift off. And that's the last part of this ground test campaign that we're seeing now is getting rid of as much of that risk, understanding the system as much as we can. But it's also full stack for flight if all goes well, right, like maybe they'll have to take the ship off to do a little tweaks here or there. But the idea is that this is the configuration and getting them ready to actually fly under their own power to orbit.
1: Mm-hmm. I was gonna say this, this would be the orbital spacecraft, right? I mean, that's what all of this ground testing campaign that
2: that you've described is leading towards, right? Is getting this thing into orbit. Exactly. Exactly. And that's a huge test of the, not just the propulsion systems, but for Starship's um, thermal protection system, those black tiles that you see them putting on the outside of half of the vehicle, because only half of it needs a thermal protection system for re-entry. But it's also about testing the boosters software and the catch towers software, because the current plan and plans change every single day at SpaceX. So note that with, with some caveat here, but the, pl- the flight plan is... Put the ship orbital, and also bring the booster back to that tower and use the arms to catch it. That's bonkers. Which, which, That's which is just making sci-fi. Yeah, it's making sci-fi reality. It's just it's bonkers. It really is. Like, <laughs> but if anybody's going to pull it off, it's going to be
1: SpaceX, right? I mean, they've they've the team has shown that booster landing precision landing is possible and and this is just
2: kind of a progression in that um in in a way although i i would caution that with the size of this system and it is very different than falcon nine right and falcon heavy where those cores come down and landing legs deploy and they don't ever really have to hover right they're just trying to reach close to zero velocity when they touch the barge or touch the landing deck but these boosters are actually going to have to throttle their engines down to almost a hover as the arms come close to catch them. So there are enough differences that people should potentially be expecting something spectacular the first attempt, whether that's spectacular they did it or spectacular we rebuild. We'll wait and see. But, you know, they've obviously have to have some confidence if they're going to aim it back at the launch tower on attempt number one.
1: Yeah, especially with the, those complexities that, that you've outlined there. Um, I want to take a step back, though, Chris, because I think, to me, seeing that image of the ship and the booster stacked together was... Um, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. It was it's, it's wild to see the size of this thing. I mean, can you describe just... How big this I mean, there's 33 engines. That's 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 not like anything we've seen before. So just just the business end of this thing is, is larger than anything we've seen before. But the rest of it is
2: it's massive, right? It it, it really is. So so to put it into perspective um uh, for, for for everyone here, the starship itself um is 120 meters or 394 feet tall. In uh, in its fully stacked configuration, like we've seen this week, um, it also is um, about nine meters or thirty feet wide at its base. And to put that into comparison, so the Saturn V rocket was a little bit wider at thirty three feet, um, and and a similar height at three hundred sixty three feet or one hundred and ten meters. But this is bigger by about thirty three feet than the saturn V rocket and it is more than twice as powerful so getting the sequencing right getting you know those final tests underway so that the 33 engines can do their thing um is is important but the scale of it is if you if you actually look at the sls rocket from nasa while the orange core stage is a bit skinnier when you add the boosters sls is a bit wider um, but you have these very similar behemoths and beasts of rockets, but it's it's truly, honestly, Brendan, almost incomprehensible. Because um, we're talking about something that's nearly 400 feet tall and incredibly wide. And most people who don't live in skyscraper cities don't have a sense of what that is, let alone the fact that it will leave the planet. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's wild. Some, something like forty stories tall, right? I mean, just my rough, rough yeah, math yeah. there. I mean, this is this is this is this is tall. <laughs> it's it's a it's, yeah. it's a tall <laughs> it's a tall vehicle. Um, so you mentioned that there's there's some ground testing still, and then there's that orbital test. I mean, walk us through what has to happen before this thing goes to orbit, and then what will that orbital test be? Um, what are some of the things that that both SpaceX will be looking at, and also as you mentioned, NASA is using this for some of its first Artemis. Uh, landings, what is NASA going to be keeping its eye on?
2: Yeah, and that last part is is really uh, key to, to all of this, because NASA has their hand in in all of this right now, because it is the lunar lander, it is the Artemis rocket. So they're really fascinated by this as well from a, you know, how is this going to work? They've obviously seen the modeling of what the vehicle is supposed to do, how it's supposed to fly. A lot of test flight number one is validating those models to the extent that you can. Uh, but that's getting a little bit ahead of it. Let, let, let's go back to what you said is, is the path ahead before they can actually lift off. So in addition to the ground test of the engines that they need to do, they've never actually fueled the top part, the ship, through the what's known as the quick disconnect arm that reaches out midway from the tower and grabs onto the vehicle. So that's a huge part of the fueling and propellant systems that still need to be tested. Um, Aside from that, the other big thing that they have to prove is to the FAA, they need a launch license, which they do not have right now. Um, So that's a big one. Uh, You'll remember, I'm sure a lot of the listeners will remember too, that back in May, when they finally got the environmental assessment approved, that was a big hurdle to get cleared. And there were action items within there that they needed to address. Some of those do play into a launch license, but some of them, they were already doing. So some of them sort of, you know, just continue doing what you're doing. And hey, when it's sea turtle nesting season, you need to be extra cautious here. But just like at the Cape, sea turtle nesting season doesn't affect your ability to lift off um, or, or do operations. So there's that, but proving to the FAA that you've got a launch license and that you can get a launch license is a big one. And But once they have that, they'll be good to enter into their launch campaign. It, it might take them a couple of tries to get off the ground, um, as we saw with their past test campaign. So no one should be surprised if they don't go on attempt number one uh, that's incredibly rare uh, for first rockets so um, you know we should definitely give them like we give nasa the benefit of the doubt with sls um, in this regard once it lifts off this is where the test flight actually becomes really interesting because this has moved around and changed and we'll have to end up seeing what spacex ultimately asks the faa for the license to be because the first license they asked for was technically suborbital. They were going to basically get to orbital speed, but keep the the path that they fly, the trajectory shaped in just a way where they would come back into the atmosphere without having to fire the engines. So basically a passive way to show you could get to orbit and that the heat shield works. And they were going to ditch the booster in the Gulf of Mexico, and they were going to ditch the ship in the Pacific Ocean, just north of Hawaii. Then that changed to, well, no, we want to go completely to orbit, and we want to put Starlink version 2s on it, and we want to actually deploy payload into orbit, and we're going to catch the booster. And then a few weeks ago, Elon came out and said, well, we're actually not going to have Starlinks on the first one. We've seen them weld the payload door of the ship shut since then. Um, so now it's not going to have a payload and if it doesn't need a payload, what might your trajectory be? So we're going to have to wait and see on, on that from the FAA's licensing standpoint, but the big objective SpaceX is going to try to meet. Aside from can the vehicle actually get itself to orbit? Do the engines work as they are designed to, as they are planned to? Does the heat shield work? They're going to be looking for some other things like what is the, how much heat is getting into the internal parts of the ship, where the passengers would be, where the payload would be, verifying those models. And, you know, depending on how long they want the mission to be, since the good thing about orbit is you have to wait for your launch site to come back around underneath you, Um, depending on how long they want to leave it up there, there could be some. Other um, instrumentation style um, tests that they do to validate what they are seeing in reality versus what the computers were telling them. And then the big test will be coming back and surviving atmospheric reentry and landing and proving that the entire flight envelope as it is called from liftoff to landing actually works as intended.
1: Mm-hmm. And do we have any idea when this test may happen? I mean, obviously there's a lot of stuff that has to happen uh, yes. on the ground, but I mean, is is there a working date towards an orbital test flight?
2: So the last thing Elon said is that end of November is what they were aiming for. If you extrapolate that out based on where they are, probably mid-December is a good, oh, no earlier than date, but I very much would not be surprised to also see this in January or February. Uh, This is a totally new vehicle. It's not like SLS where you've heard, oh, NASA used to work with hydrogen, and now they're having problems with hydrogen. No one's worked with methane in this quantity. No one's worked with this number of engines in this quantity before. Um, So there are just first flight things that might still crop up and that I would totally expect them to find, hey, we didn't expect to see that, but now we did. So we want to stop to address it to make sure we're okay for first flight. So. December to February—that that's that's pretty close.
1: That's pretty close. It is. <laughs> it is. Uh, and finally, Chris, this work is is not happening by itself. There's there's also work happening in parallel at the Kennedy Space Center here in Florida. I'm wondering if you could briefly just talk about some of the things that are happening at the SpaceX facility in Florida.
2: Yeah, because a big part of this too is Starship as the lunar lander for the Artemis program. And those missions will launch from Launch Complex 39A at the Kennedy Space Center. So SpaceX has completed the structural, most of the structural stack now of the launch tower and the catch tower that will hold the arms that will physically pick up Starship and then catch it when it comes back. So they're making good progress there. They have to outfit it with some more plumbing and electrical and stuff like that. They're making a lot of good progress on the launch mount where the booster will attach to that has to fuel it. Um, and provide all that wonderful sound suppression because 16 million pounds of thrust coming out the back end of that vehicle, you need to deaden that sound a lot for your facilities and for the vehicle. So they're making good progress on that. Um, Overall, they seem to be on track to have some sort of functionality testing with the launch pad, the Starship launch pad at Kennedy in the first half of 2023, which would sort of match the overall timelines you would need to start having test flights out of Boca, and then also flying out of um, the Kennedy Space Center in Florida ahead of your Artemis program, because they do have a flight test program with a lot of Starlink missions to prove out the system before they start doing a lot of the Artemis program as well, but an interesting part with Artemis and why they need two different locations and two different launch pads for this is the refueling element, because they have to launch the lander, and the lander has to use some of its fuel to get into low Earth orbit, so then they need to go to a fuel depot, dock to that, and transfer propellant and fuel over in order to do the burns that they need to go to the Moon, and they have to demonstrate all of that as well. And they have to do that with a full up demo one style uncrewed lunar test with NASA. So all of that is aligning to say like, yeah, they got to move pretty quick on their Florida facilities and they're doing pretty good on that so far.
1: Lots happening in a very short period of time. Glad we have you around to to bring us up to speed. Chris Gephardt is the assistant managing editor at nasaspaceflight.com. Chris, thank you once again for, for joining us. My absolute pleasure. Thank you, Brendan. I was Chris Gebhardt, Assistant Managing Editor at nasaspaceflight.com. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. Be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed. Get it on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can visit wmfe.org slash are we there yet. Are We There Yet? is a production of 90.7 WMFE News and editorial guidance this week from Latoya Dennis. More of our space coverage is available on our website, wmfe.org space. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. And until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.